You'll be singing that all day now. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. My name is Matt Nickerson, and uh, you may not recognize me this morning, um, but I promise I'm still the same person. It, our Christmas Eve services, I got teased relentlessly because I was wearing a tie, and literally people would say, well, it must be Christmas. We know because Matt's wearing a tie. So I decided just to mess with all of you and uh, just get inside your head, keep you on your guard. If you have no idea what I'm talking about because you're visiting, welcome. Come back next week. I don't wear ties. All right, so... We are almost done. We got one more week in this series called The Pursuit of God, The Pursuit of God. And as we're going through the series, somebody actually said at one point, it might have even been on Facebook, I don't remember now, but they said, isn't this backward? Shouldn't it be God's pursuit of us? And here's kind of how I feel about that. I feel like the answer is yes. Like many things in the Christian life, in case you haven't noticed it, they're kind of paradoxes. They're true, but they're also true on another side that seems to contradict. For instance, you are already a part of heaven, and yet you're here. You live literally in the land of the already and the not yet. Uh, God is three, yet God is one. It's a mystery, but it's true. And anybody who's married understands how life as a believer can be a mystery, just like marriage is a bit of a mystery at times. And today, that's going to be a good setup, because what I want to talk to you today is about this word in the Bible, and I'm going to say the word in just a moment. I need you to help me, a little audience participation. So I'm going to say the word, and I just want you to yell out. The first word that comes to mind after I say the word. Are you ready? So I'm going to say a word. You're going to yell out loud as loud as you can the first word that comes to mind. I'm going to tell you the word, and I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to say it out loud. The word is holy. Now, I'm going to say the word on three, and I just want you to yell the first thing that comes to mind. Ready? One, two. I'm just kidding. I don't know all of you, and there are some of you who might be stinkers in this room. And this is being recorded. But I wanted to do that to set up. There's a problem with the word holy, and the problem isn't the word, the problem is us. The word holy has so many meanings today that it almost has no meaning today. When I was in India, did you know that it is a true story? There are literally holy cows over there. And uh, it's sad. There are all these people who are hungry, and there's these cows walking around. It's like, you know, you could make a great hamburger. <laughs> but you can't, because it might be your cousin Susie or whatever who came back as a cow. There are, if you ever watched, when I was a kid, there was a Batman TV show, and uh, Robin, I believe it was, would say all the time, holy whatever, Batman, and he'd fill in the blank. Oh, I love that, but I have no idea what it means. Today, we have holy rollers. Is that something you put in your hair, ladies? I don't even know what it is. That's a Christian who gambles in Vegas. I don't know what that is. I thought it was a high roller. No, it was a holy roller. Ah, it's a bad joke. I know. But anyway... There are all these things that are holy. We don't know what they mean. And so it's very confusing. For instance, when a guy named Peter who wrote uh, the books, First, Second Peter, when, uh, when he writes and then he says to us, so be holy in all you do. In fact, he goes on, he says, in the same way that God is holy, so be holy. Now, if that's not paralyzing enough, what does that mean? Am I supposed to act like a cow or a pile of something? Like, what exactly am I supposed to do with that? And the reality is most of us know what it means. When we hear that God is holy, we think of God's perfection. And it's true. God being holy means he is so separate and different from us that it's, it's almost unfathomable. And so what it does to you if you're a Christian in this room is it creates this tremendous burden, right? How am I supposed to be holy in the same way that God is holy? But my theory is this, and I've taught on this before, I believe part of the problem is we don't know what that means to be holy. And so if we dig a little deeper, we get some understanding. So let's do that today. The word holy in Hebrew is the word kadosh. I've had to do this before, but I just like to say it aloud. Kadosh. On three, I'm going to have you say it. Ready? One, two, three. Kadosh. If you do it right, the person in front of you is going to go, that is disgusting. 
like all good Hebrew phrases. Now, kadosh in the Old Testament actually has many, many, many uh, times it's applied. So in the Old Testament, we have the holy nation of Israel. <laughs> we actually have holy sacrifices. Uh, we have holy items like the Ark of the Covenant, and the items in the Ark of the Covenant are called holy items. There are holy days. Sabbath, Saturday, is set aside as a holy day. Then there are festivals, and those are like holy weeks or entire celebrations. What in the world does all of this mean? Well, they actually all mean the exact same thing. You just have to put it in context. The technical definition, if you're taking notes, the technical definition for the word holy is this. To be set apart from what is common or ordinary or secular, set apart from what is common or ordinary or secular. Now, what this doesn't mean is become Amish. It doesn't mean, you know, move as far away from culture as possible out in the middle of nowhere, make the most amazing food in the world, build really cool stuff with your hands because you can't use electronics and tools, you can't use cars because you need to be different or maybe even, and I'm not talking about the Amish, I'm not because some of you may come from that background, or even become weird. It does mean to be set apart. But see, there's a piece of that definition that's missing that really brings the whole thing into picture, and it's this piece here. Literally, for God's purposes. So if you put that into the definition, here's how it would sound. To be set apart from what is common or ordinary or secular for God's purposes. Let's talk about what that would look like in the Old Testament. So if you were going to make a sacrifice in the Old Testament, you were to take one of your animals, say a sheep or a goat or a bull, and you were to offer it to the Lord, that sacrifice would become holy. Now, five minutes before you set it aside as a sacrifice to the Lord, it was common. Are you with me? It was just like every other sheep or goat or cow or bull or whatever. But now you're going to set it aside and give it to the Lord. It is now a holy animal. You would then take it to um, the, the priests at the temple, and they would offer it as a sacrifice. And it became something special. It had a special purpose, a purpose that was for God and by God. I don't know if that makes any sense. So with that understanding, I hope I can make things a little bit clearer as we go. We're going to jump now into our text for today in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have your app open and you've downloaded our app, your app store is open, you downloaded our app, you'll find that I finished my outline at 2 a.m. and I was a little tired and I put these out of order. So we're starting in chapter 2 and then we'll get to chapter 4. So go to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. It says this. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. What Peter is beginning to get into, and it's part of chapter 1, which we're not talking about today, he's getting into this very idea of holiness. And he's giving what we call a vice list. And a vice list, in Paul's writings, it's, it's a little different. He kind of goes through all these don'ts, like don't do this and don't do that. They're vices, things you could stumble into. Here, Peter gives four categories, and they all complement each other, but they all have to do with this thing we talked about last week. Go back, if you will, to verse 1 with me. These four things, each are the very things that destroy every relationship. And it's not that there aren't others, just like any vice list, there's always more you could add. But these four things destroy every relationship. Deceit, if you have deceit, if your kids are deceitful, if you catch them, maybe the first couple times you correct them, you rebuke them. If it continues to happen, don't you lose trust? Same thing with your spouse, your boss, 
coworkers, government. I mean, deceit really destroys everything. It's not that it can't be rebuilt, but it's not holy. It's not being set apart. Now, keep going. The word hypocrisy here is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's literally the word that stands for uh, what, kind of uh, what I would do here if we were holding a play on this stage. So a person comes out in character, right? And they come out and they're, I don't know, um, Mark Twain. And I don't know why I picked that. That's terrible. They're the guy in the filler on the roof. That just sounds so much more Jewish or appropriate. Anyway, they come out and they're acting. They're playing a part. But as soon as they take off the makeup and take off the hat, they walk off stage and they're a different person. I've read uh, interviews with multiple actors and actresses who say it's so weird. When they um, run into a fan on the street and the fan comes up to them and they can only picture them as that character in that TV show or that movie they were in forever ago. And, uh, and, and they're not that person. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh, you're Phoebe. No, I'm really not. See, that's just a role that I played. It was a job I got paid to do, and it's over now. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> I'll sing it for you if you want. No, I'm just kidding. So the whole idea here of this word is that it's a person playing a game. They're acting one way, but they're really in their heart another. That destroys every relationship, doesn't it? I mean, you've gotten really good in your life at sniffing that person out a mile away, haven't you? How about this one? Jealousy. It doesn't take long to enter into any Christian organization, let alone any organization in the world, to find that jealousy destroys everything. Come on, there's probably been a point in your life where you lost a friendship either because of your jealousy of them or their jealousy of you. And to this day, it might even be baffling to you. Like, whatever happened there? But when you dig deep enough, you start to see I was jealous. I wanted what they had. Facebook feeds this today, by the way, and all social media. It's funny. I was talking to a family who went on a vacation not too long ago, and they said all their friends were coming up to be like, oh, that look, just looks so awesome. Like, you have no idea. We had lice the entire trip. <laughs> but you would have had no idea. You'd have been looking at their Facebook pictures and seeing them smiling and think, I am so jealous. And lastly, uh, all, you should like underline or highlight this here, all unkind speech. All unkind speech. Now, if you take these four building blocks together, if you were to remove those from every relationship and insert whatever the opposite of those is, uh, truth being one, being congruent with who you say you are and who you actually are, uh, instead of being jealous, maybe being encouraging, and instead of using unkind speech, you actually use your words to build others up and encourage them. Imagine what would happen in every single one of your relationships if those things were present. What Peter's trying to build to here is this whole idea is, if you're going to live for God, do this, because this is the beginning of the basis of holiness. It's not everything, but it's a huge component of it. Now, I want you to see here, he tells us, how do we make that happen? Verse 2, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk. Babies long for this. Man, don't give me any of that watered-down stuff. Don't stick soda in my bottle or wherever you're feeding your baby. Don't do that. So this word here, crave, right here, is actually the root of the word epithumia in Greek. It's where we get one of our words for lust or strong desire. And what Peter's trying to do when he says this is, man, have this deep, profound draw to the word of God. Go read chapter one. That's exactly what Peter is saying. Because if you want to actually be holy, the way that you make that happen is to drink in the words of God and let it show you who God is. 
But even that, all of that, all of that creates a little bit of a burden. Because I don't know about you, but let's just look back to yesterday. How have you done? Did you drink deeply in the word of God? Were you jealous of anybody? Hypocrisy? Deceit. All right, I saved the best for last. Unkind speech? It kills me. Yesterday, my wife's like, hey, Matt, can I see you? And I go in, she's in the bathroom getting ready, and she's like, hey, your words have been really harsh with the boys. Your words have been harsh with the boys. <laughs> Who do you think you are? I'm the man of this house. <laughs> do what I want. <laughs> when the kids went to bed that night, I said, thank you for loving me enough to telling me the truth because you're right. I wasn't just speaking the truth in love. I was just being unkind. How you doing? See, God has called you to be holy. He expects it. I would even go so far as to say he demands it of you. But before you give up, throw in the towel and say, I can't get it done, you need to know that this is two sides of the same coin. So maybe you've seen me playing with this thing, and anytime I have something in my hands, I can't help but fidget. But on this side of the coin, this is what we've been talking about. This is that God has called you to be holy because he is holy, to actually be set apart for God, by God, for his purposes. But the other side of this coin is the piece that you may be missing. Take a look with me now. Second Peter, or First Peter, chapter 2. I keep doing that. Verse 4. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Some translations say you will never be put to shame. Now, let's just go back, if you will, jump back with me to verse 4 there. And uh, let me just walk through some of this. I'll summarize some. You can read through on your own, make sure I'm hitting all the big points. But I want you to get this. So, yes, God has called you to be holy. He is demanding of you holiness if you're a believer. However, realize that this is not just an effort on your own. This is not something you do to become more like God. So you keep trying harder and harder and harder. No, no, no. This is something that has already been done for you. And maybe you don't fully understand the gospel. I've been talking about my friend in town who, uh, he's an LDS, he's a Mormon, and we've been uh, meeting. In fact, by God's grace, we're going to go to lunch this week, and I'm giving him a book, and he's giving me a book. And so you might just pray about our conversation. They sent me a video last night of a sermon, and as I listened to the video, this is the massive difference. It's the difference in the gospel. Mormons may be far more holier than most of you in terms of their moral actions. The difference is their striving never ends. They never fully arrive. Because they don't have the blood of Christ covering their sin. The moment that you surrendered to God in Christ, what happened was your eternity became secure in your faith in Jesus. 
This is how Paul can write and say, God has made a down payment on you. It's the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's a foretaste of glory. And what Paul means when he says that is, one day you are going to be in God's presence. God's going to be with you. There's going to be no hindrances in your relationship between you and God. And until that day comes, God gave you an experience of it, a taste of it, by sending the Holy Spirit to live inside you now. It's God in you now. It has already been done. You were moved from death to life, from common to holy. It's all done. And so then what do we do with all this challenge to actually be holy? It's as if the New Testament writers are saying to you, walk in what God has already made you. Learn to become like Christ. You're already secure in heaven. You're already placed in him, covered by his blood. You will be resurrected to life. There's a promise in that. But don't then just throw it all away and say, well, then I don't need to put in any effort. No, no, no. Your effort isn't for salvation. Your effort is to become like Christ, to honor him with your body. And this whole talk so far that, that Paul's laying, or not Paul, Peter's laying out here about cornerstones. And maybe you don't know the, the context here. So a cornerstone in, in, the, in that day was used to build a building. So you would take the first brick or the first block or whatever it is, the first stone, and you would set it down. Now, that very block or cornerstone was used for every other stone to line up against. If that one brick was off by even one degree, do you know what happens in a huge building? It looks like every stinking project in my house ever. <laughs> we were in Colorado, and I got this genius idea. I'm going to put in crown molding. Anybody ever done that? Okay, guys, who've ever done crown molding, you have one gift. What is that gift? Not, nobody, nobody. You all need to do some crown molding. Your greatest gift is called cock. It is the hardest job in the world. After messing it up a couple times, I went to Home Depot and found out that they make these little blocks that you stick in the corner, and so you don't have to figure out all the perfect angles. You stick that thing right up against there. It was glorious until I got to the part where our door was, and there was no place to put a block because it was a funky angle. So I did all the rest of the room. I'm a hack. I realize that. And I went to put this piece up, and it wouldn't work, and it wouldn't work, and it wouldn't work, and it wouldn't work. You know how frustrating it is to go upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, and if you're a little ADD like me, a little ADD like me, you forget even what angle you're cutting it at by the time you get downstairs. Got to go back upstairs and measure again. I got so fed. I wasted so many pieces of crown molding. I got so fed up. I finally went to the store and I bought this little thing. It's got a circle at the bottom and it tells you like the angle of the degree that you need. I tried multiple pieces with that thing. Worthless. I want my money back. It was worthless. You know what I found out the problem was? This piece that I had on the straight wall that was bumping up against this block was the wrong angle. I know every guy in the room is a carpenter is like, uh, any idiot could have figured that out. <laughs> Enough said. So, <laughs> the point is, if the cornerstone is off, then every other piece will be off. But here's the thing about Jesus. He's never off. He was 100% on. He honored God with his body, with his life, not just his moral actions. Everything he did is exactly what the Father told him to do. So therefore, uh, Peter goes on and he tells us, therefore, we line up our lives against him and we can constantly measure, how are you doing? You know what this means? This means fathers, 
Let me just actually back up. Husbands. This means you husbands in the room can ask yourself one simple question. Am I loving my wife today the way Jesus loves me? Let that question sink in for a minute. Ephesians chapter 5, I believe it's 24 and 25, Paul tells us men to give up our own lives for our brides. They're our own body, he says. So let me ask you a question. Men, when you're frustrated with your wives, are you patiently loving her? Are you praying for her? Are you encouraging her? Because did you know the Bible says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance? Or are you being harsh and yelling at her? Well, ladies, you're not off the hook. In that same context there in Ephesians 5, did you know that Paul says the craziest, most outdated thing in the world? He says, wives, submit to your husband. Pfft, I knew this Jesus stuff was a waste of time. <laughs> we don't talk about that word anymore. And I get it. See, in the biblical context, a godly man is surrendering to God. He's loving his wife as if she is his own body. So when he's calling her to submit to him and follow his lead, he's not calling her to follow a tyrant or a dictator. He's calling her to follow a man who's willing to love her like a savior. It brings up great questions. What do you do if he's being a jerk? What do you do if he's not being kind or merciful? And this isn't a marriage sermon, but I would say look at Jesus in the garden. And granted, he's talking to God the Father who's perfect, but he still does the hard thing out of glory to the Father. And wives, I would encourage you to pray for your husbands. Pray that God would change their heart. That doesn't mean if he's abusing you, you stay in the marriage. No, you go to sheltering wings. You get some help. But wives, this is a biblical mandate. Are you loving your spouses the way that Jesus loves the Father? Hey, dads, did you know that same passage there in Ephesians? It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. My wife loves to bring that one up. I think she means her dad. I'm just saying. I don't know what it is. I just have this knack for exasperating my kids. I can tease and pick and annoy and frustrate like it's nobody's business. Fathers, are you actually leading your children in a deeper place with God? How are you doing? Are you measuring up to the cornerstone? Because when the Bible calls you to holiness, it's saying the work of salvation is already done. The work of becoming like Christ is a work in you that God is doing. Notice that here, even in chapter 2. I want you to see verse 5 again. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. Who is doing the building? Come on. There's only like, what, four answers? Jesus, love, Bible, and... God. So, who's doing the building? Oh, come on. I prepped you and you still were kind of weak on me. All right. What comes after holy? I think you'll get that one right. You ready? No? Okay. God is building you. Now, maybe you didn't realize exactly what this means. Let me just take you back real quick. Go to the Old Testament. So God's in a little tent, a little tent of meeting. He follows around with Moses. David gets this dream. I want to build God a house. God says, you can't do that, David. There's blood on your hands. One day, somebody's going to build a house for me, one of your descendants, and he's going to build a home for me, and everybody assumes it's Solomon. So David buys a piece of land from a guy named Aruna, and his son Solomon then builds this massive temple, and God chooses to make that the place. In the Old Testament, there's these massive bricks laid out, these big stones laid out, and then he chooses to let that be the place where Israel comes to meet with God. They offer sacrifices there. They worship there. Oh, man, read sometime the very first worship service in that 
that temple, oh, God shows up, and it's like smoke and cool stuff, and it's awesome. It's like amazing. It's the most mind-boggling thing maybe in all of Scripture. And then you get to the New Testament, and you read passages like this, and you go, what? And what you find out is God's not building a destination. God's building a people. And you and I are the building he's building. You are the temple of God. You. And the only way that works is if each stone is lined up against the cornerstone and stacked on top of each other. There's no temple if Jesus is the only stone. There's no temple if you're a brick out in the desert by yourself. See, a brick only has usefulness if it's playing its part in the temple. Are you with me? But don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I'm saying, and I'm going to flesh this out a little more, I believe that wherever we were in America 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, when we were maybe a more Christian nation, even though I think some of that's a bit of a facade, but more of a Christian nation than we are today, we now live in what we call a post-Christian culture. And some would argue we live in a post-post-Christian culture, but that just makes my brain hurt. So we're going to stick with one post for now. And in a post-Christian culture, we are now rediscovering what it means to fulfill these kinds of texts. See, the way it worked in America 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you build really big, expensive buildings. You put on really big, expensive programs. You teach all of your people to go out into the community and invite them to your building because the temple of God is on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones. Except it doesn't fit passages like this. You, you are the temple. And so at some point when you leave the building, guess what? You are still the temple. How exactly does that work? What exactly does that mean? Let's keep reading. I'm going to do a one-two, skip a few for time's sake. Jump down to verse 9. But you are not like that. Let me just hang on to that phrase and tell you what he's talking about so you don't think I'm crazy. But what he said in the verses before this that we skipped is that for those of you who love God, you line your lives up with Christ. But for those who don't love God, they don't believe in Jesus, that stone becomes something they trip over. They look at it and they stumble over it because they won't believe in it. They won't trust it. So therefore, they can't be built next to it and on it. And it crushes them. And he says, you're not like that. And it goes on, he says, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. What is Peter trying to get to here? It's the same kind of concept. God saved you. He redeemed you. He restored you. But he did it for a purpose. He did it to give you meaning and relevance in this life for his glory. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. Each of those very phrases could be an entire sermon. I'm going to try to do two minutes worth of justice to each of those. Go back to that passage there on the slides there. I think that's verse uh, 9. You are royal priests. The priests in the Old Testament were the tribe. There were 12 tribes. They were the tribes set aside. They couldn't own land. They didn't really get paid either since it was an agricultural society. They were paid by the sacrifices that were brought in. They were able to eat from those things brought in by others. 
The priests then also mediated between the people and God. They literally served in the temple, offering sacrifices, praying for people, blessing people. And in fact, one day a year, the great high priest, one day a year, one man could go into what was called the Holy of Holies. This was a, a, a spot that, that it was said that God would sit on the Ark of the Covenant on the judgment seat, sometimes called the mercy seat. And there was this huge, thick curtain that blocked off the Ark of the Covenant from the people of God. And that one day a year, that high priest would sneak into that place and he would offer sacrifices and it would cover over. Israel's sins, both the ones they forgot to repent of or they didn't know they needed to repent of, thereby for one year making them clean. Now what we know is we're told in the New Testament, Jesus is our great high priest. He went into the Holy of Holies. He offered his own blood as a sacrifice, thereby covering all of our sin forever if we trust him. But what happened when Jesus was on the cross and he was hanging there and he yelled out, it is finished. In that moment, you can go read your Gospels, this thick curtain tore from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, where a person would have torn it, from top to bottom. Because what God was doing in that moment is he was saying, the way to me is now open to everyone. And anyone who comes through that cross, through that blood, your entire identity has been changed. No longer is there one small group of people, the pastors, the bishops, the priests, who get paid to be good. Now every single man or woman who comes to Christ has a job to do. You're a priest. So flesh it out. Go back and read the rest of what Peter says in light of that. What does that mean? That means that you actually take other people's needs into the throne room of grace. That's what Hebrews tells us. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence and find that God is tuning in and listening to our prayers as we cry out and express to him our needs. And you now, as a priest, can do that for yourself and others. Did you know that? You can actually take people right up to the throne room of God, and you don't have to have anybody else go with you. You don't have to have a paid person, a trained person, a Bible college person. You, you can go. You're like, but I just got baptized a week ago. Uh-huh. Immediate identity change. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you need some time in this. Let's talk about the next one. A holy nation. What does it mean to be a holy nation? Well, when God created Israel, the whole point was he was going to set them apart. They were going to live different than the world in every capacity. And the world would look at them and wonder and awe and go, why is it it works for you? And what we're doing doesn't work. It's so backwards. But Israel failed over and over and over again. And so what God is now saying is, in you, I have placed the ability to get done everything. I have set you apart from what is common, from what is ordinary, and what is secular. So don't return to the things of this world. You be holy. You be different. You be righteous in all you do. Because I've changed you by the blood of Christ. So now, church, and understand this. If you're visiting with a study, you just need to know this. Don't drop the bar. We talk so much about our brokenness, and I've got brokenness, and you do too. And I've got sin, struggles, and temptation, and you do too. I get it, and it's true. But don't become at peace carrying around your old identity into your new life. That's the reason he died. Sin makes a terrible bedfellow. 
It's a terrible taskmaster. And if sin is continuing to own you, it is your master. You are its slave. You need to know it's going to rip you apart. But you also need to know this. One of the most common phrases for God in the Bible is that he's a father. And we are told throughout the New Testament that every single one of us, every single one of us are orphans. And see, if you've never, and I have, but if you've never adopted before, then maybe that analogy breaks down for you. But see, I have a son in my home that we brought home from Taiwan. And there is literally nothing he could do to change my love for him. Nothing. He is mine. He carries my name. I adore him. Does that mean he never makes mistakes? Well, it depends on if you're talking to him or me. <laughs> so yes, I want to grow him. Yes, I want to change him. Yes, I want to make him new. I want to make him more like Christ. I want to be the discipler in his life as long as I'm able and willing. And... But I'll always love him. Church, you are God's own possession. He's adopted you as his own. And he's not like your earthly daddy, no matter how good your earthly daddy was. No, he's a perfect heavenly father. And so he is doing something in you, and we call this sanctification. Sanctification. And you may not know this, but in the word sanctification is the word sanctify. And in the word sanctify is actually the word saint. So the Hebrew word for holy in the Old Testament is Kadosh, but did you know that's the Hebrew word, or sorry, the Greek word in the New Testament for holy is the word hagias, and it is the root, the root of the word saint. Now, how many of you, help me out here, are Catholic or come from a Catholic background? Raise it loud or proud. I got nuns in my family. Woot, woot. I don't know what it means. But I've seen them do it. <laughs> True story, side note. One time, my wife and I were doing a little thing. We were, we were at a camp together, and um, uh, it was a part Catholic church, part something else. I, can't, I think it was Seventh-day Adventist. Like, the Seventh-day Adventist on a Saturday. The Catholic church met on Sunday. They used the same building, and uh, we were in there. I don't even remember who we were in there for because it wasn't for either one of those groups. But um, I totally backed up into one of these little things of holy water they had sitting there and spilled it everywhere. And nobody was around, so we filled it up in the water fountain and never told anybody. <laughs> I don't even know what they use it for. I hope, I hope that didn't keep anybody out of heaven. All right. <laughs> now, in the Catholic Church, the way you become a saint, this is how my sermons end up so long. They're not even over there. In the Catholic Church, the way you become a saint is after you die, I can't remember the exact things, but there's like three or four things you have to do. And they get together, the, the Pope and the bishops get together, and they vote on whether or not you made it in. So they look at your life and say, did you live a life of servitude? Did you live a life of commitment to Jesus? And did you commit a miracle? And after they go through all these tests, if you've done it all, they vote. And if you get voted in, it's kind of like the Hall of Fame. Then you're a saint. And I've always wondered, so like what happens like in the Hall of Fame? You know, what happens if you miss the first three or four votes? And then you get voted in. Like what changed? You've been dead. But this happens all the time. I don't know if you know that. 
And the reason I say this is that's not the biblical definition of saint. The root of the word saint is the word holy. When God looks at you and says, you are a saint, what he's saying is you have been set apart, saved, redeemed, purchased by God from what you used to live and what he wants you to live. So now, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That is your spiritual act of worship. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You can clap for God. Don't clap for me. But I hope if you clap for God, it's a little better than that. <laughs> Listen, church. You have an entirely new identity. Stop seeing yourself as a loser, as a failure. I know, some of you blew it this weekend. I know. So what do you do? Throw in the towel? You go back to your old ways? Because those worked so well. Are you going to come back to the cornerstone and look at your life and look at his life and say, I'm not yet who I need to be, but I'm fully restored in you. So Christ, here I am. Do in me what only you can do. And with that kind of understanding, look at the rest of what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. My goodness, I wish I had another half hour, but I don't. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And what Peter is trying to get to here is this. While God has made you holy, live in such a way that the world around you looks and goes, there's something different about that guy. There's something different about that girl. I don't know what it is, but they don't use the language I use. They don't tell the jokes I tell. They don't invest in the things I invest in. They seem to use their time to love and give and serve the world. And when they look at you, though they don't necessarily know your God on the last day, when he comes back, they're going to look at him and say, man, I saw you in them. I saw you in them. Now, this whole language, I want you to look at this. Verse 11. Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners... This is an entire message in itself, but it's a phenomenal one. I'm going to do Old Testament history in about two minutes or less, I hope. So in the Old Testament, when Solomon built that temple, Queen of Sheba literally came to Solomon to understand his wisdom. Israelites came from all over. People came from all over to meet God in the temple. But when the Israelites wouldn't follow God, and when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, came along, he was a terrible leader, an evil man, and he led Israel into sin. And so God split the kingdom, and eventually the Israelites were led into exiles, exiles. And what that meant is God was then sending them out into these foreign nations, and this is the part you and I struggle with. See, when God sent the Israelites out, he didn't just send them over to Europe or Canada or someplace that's like us but slightly different. No, he sent Babylon in to destroy Jerusalem and carry the Israelites off. And Babylon, the best comparison today, would be like going over to the Middle East and living near ISIS. That's not an exaggeration. These people were evil and immoral in every way. And yet God tells them, I want you to live as foreigners and exiles in that land, and I want you to pray for them, and I want you to bless them. What? How many of you guys have ever heard the passage of Jeremiah where, I think it's in verse 11, Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. 
plan is to give you hope. Go back and read Jeremiah 29 again sometime later today, perhaps, and see that God isn't talking to you, first of all, though maybe in part, and he's not talking to your kids. And maybe God has some specific plan for you. I don't know. I'm not God. But I know this. He's talking to a group of people living in exile. He's already warned them. The entire book of Jeremiah, he's a prophet. In fact, we call him the weeping prophet because he wrote the book Lamentations. He keeps warning the people, repent and turn to God, repent and turn to God, and they won't. And he keeps telling them, if you don't, evil, terrible things are going to happen to you because God will not stand for lack of holiness in his people. And they wouldn't repent, and they wouldn't repent. So God sends in the Babylonians. And that's his entire book is reflecting as he looks over the city and he's weeping for what has happened to his people, lamenting if only they turned to God. But Jeremiah 29 is God telling the prophet Jeremiah, this is not the end of their story. There's more to be written. I will show up. I will give back all these things that have been taken away because I am perfecting my people. So then he says, and I don't have this on the screen for you, Jeremiah 29 verse 4. Oh, listen to what the Lord says. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so they may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. In other words, I believe this is a good word for today. In other words, what Jeremiah, God through the prophet Jeremiah, is saying to the Israelites is, you pray for your enemies. You work hard while you're in exile, a foreigner, temporary, resident, and you bless your community, because if it goes well with them, it'll go well for you. This is exactly what Peter is drawing on. Did you know there are 17 books in the Bible that are written to exiles? There's four gospels, just to give you a comparison, because this is not our home. The earthly temple, the earthly Jerusalem has been torn down and destroyed, but the heavenly temple, the heavenly Jerusalem will be here one day. So don't live your lives here. Don't get too comfortable here. As if this is home. You're going to a whole different place that your father is preparing for you. So let's ask this question as we kind of wrap up here. What in the world does that mean then? Like, what do I do different? Well, this isn't everything, but just look at what Peter says next. For the Lord's sake, respect all human authority whether they're Republican or Democrats, <laughs> black or white, rich or poor, or whether the king as head of state or the officials that he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. A whole another sermon right there, but what Peter's trying to get to is this. There is no man or woman on the face of the planet who's leading an authority who isn't given that position by God, it's his earth. They will be held accountable for leading righteously. It is our job to honor them, to follow the ways of God. So if they tell you to stop worshiping God, sorry, that's a rule I can't follow. God's rule trumps your rule. But we are to honor them. We're to serve them. We're to bless them. We're to pray for them. Man, how much different would our culture be if just the Christians alone would do that? Like, seriously, friends, please, 
Reconsider what you put on Facebook. I'm serious. But then he goes on. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people. Did you know the word ignorant is actually not a knock? Now, we could say it in a way that is a knock. All the word ignorant means is you haven't been taught. You haven't been trained. All Peter's saying here is they don't know. They don't know why you do what you do. Who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God and respect the king or the president or the vice president or whoever it might be. Now, I'm going to wrap this up with this little thought. If today I were to take this very message on holiness and figure out what I'm supposed to do tomorrow, here's one little phrase I think would change everything, change everything, and it's service, service. And service means this, giving of yourself for the equipping and the blessing of others. Over the last 50 or 100 years, as we were in a Christian culture, churches built big buildings, told everybody to come here and we're going to be awesome. Now that we are in exilic situation, we are exiles, I believe that God has equipped you as royal priests to go out into your kids' schools, baseball teams, hockey teams, basketball teams, to go into your neighborhood where there's Halloween or whatever else, to go into your workplace and your community and your Starbucks, thank you, Jesus, and whatever else where you are, and to be royal priests there, to work for the good of your community, to make your community a better place, but a holy place. A place where God is seen through his people. Where are you leveraging who you are for this world? And let me just close with this. Did you know that God literally made you for a reason on this earth? What if the reason you had the family you had, whether great or terrible, what if the reason you've been through all that you've been through, whether wonderful or terrible, what if all of it was for the very purpose of a gift to this world from your heavenly Father? And you, if you weren't walking in it, then the world is missing one of the stones that the temple needs. That's why Peter closes here. I'm going to close with Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking the speakers of God himself are speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Then do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven. You have bought us, redeemed us. You have changed us from death to life. Father, right now, I just pray that you would give us a vision bigger than we'd ever imagined. God, help us to see ourselves as foreigners, strangers in a foreign land. This is not our home. This is not the end of our story. God, I pray 
There's, there's some people in this room I know struggling at work and they're frustrated. Father, give them your heart, a heart of joy to love and serve in that place in the role that you've given them. God, I know there are some in here who are struggling with some relationships around them. These people are being immoral and unhealthy. God, help them to be a salt and a light. Too much salt and we burn. Too much light and we blind. God, help them instead to, to love and to serve with the heart of Jesus. And Father, I pray for all of us in this room who are struggling or stuck in sin. You've already freed us. We have everything we need for life and godliness, Peter says. God, teach us to walk in your ways, trusting in your spirit. And Father, I pray it would be a marker day. Somebody would choose to walk away from their past and into your future. Father, as we enter into communion now, Meet us in this place and convict us and encourage us in Jesus' name.